Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. This is episode four of the podcast, and it's a second part of a series where we explore the founder of Anaquist, the mightiest and most venerated realm across the continent, Eucantha I. And we could pretty much call this one Anaquist Begins. Once Yucantha Anarchist band of adventurers had uncovered the heavenfall in the year 70, and the claim was staked through the time-honoured method of announcing, this is ours, everyone else can bugger off, the traditional most widely held narrative is a period of fending off attacks and a time of consolidation. Essentially a military history of skirmishes, battles, feints, betrayals, alliances, realpolitik, compromises and a bucket of bloody-mindedness. And of course people being people, it turns out to be much more complicated than that. Most of our understanding of this time comes from Escades, one of Eucantha Anaquist's followers who I've mentioned previously, uh, ex-pirate advisor and Eucantha fangirl, to put it bluntly. But we also rely on the Annals of Anaquist, the official record of each monarch's reign, which should be treated the same way as we treat a politician's autobiography once they retire, except back then they didn't have a remainders bin. Treat the Annals carefully, in other words. News of the discovery of the extraordinary heavenfall didn't take long to get to the outside world, despite Eucantha Anaquist's best efforts at browbeating, uh, intimidating and bribing her followers. Secrets, as it were, really can't wait to get out, and this was a beauty. Uncovering the entire body of a dead god, uh, complete with scales of dizzying puissance, Uh, People in the farthest reaches of the continent were soon sitting up, poking each other and declaring, I'd like me a piece of that. So, Eucantha Anaquist displays another facet of her many. Thus far, she's been shown uh, to have a command of organisation and logistics, as well as a command of command. Shaping her ragtag band of adventurers into a coordinated exploration and excavation party was an achievement in itself, but now she had to become a military leader, more or less. And here, let's embark on a little aside that will soon return to the subject at hand, like, like, a dog that wanders off, but soon puts up its head, looks around and gallops back to its master. Yeah, almost exactly like that. Right. How many people did Eucantha Anarchist actually have with her? It seems like a simple question, but academic careers have been made and ruined by this fairly simple issue. Uh, Books have been written, papers have been given, conferences abandoned in uproar over trying to come up with the concrete number of people in Yucanta Anarchist Band. In the 1970s, 
There was a legendary symposium on the subject in Bruges, uh, and, and it devolved into fisticuffs, which escalated into a wild melee, which spilled out onto the streets where local security forces were called to deal with brawling professors, dons and assorted intellectuals. Much tweed was rent that day, my friends, and it's still talked of in hushed tones as the Battle of Bruges. Given all this controversy, where do I stand? Well, I can stand almost anywhere, and uh, as I have dozens, maybe hundreds of estimates to choose from. Consensus? Well, it's a laughable concept in this area, and it seems that when any academic starts to agree with another, someone changes their mind and stakes out another claim entirely and defends it with bared teeth. Bravely, though, I'm going to stick out my neck and look for a range that will give us something to work with. If we go back to the sources closest to the founding of Anarchist, so Escades again, and Velmont, the author of The Truth, neither of them name a figure, which is unfortunate in the extreme. Uh, Escades talks about a band of fellow adventurers as if everyone should know the size of it, while Velmont has trouble with uh, numbers generally. Sometimes he says there were a score in the band. At other times, it becomes a horde of 5,000 fellow adventurers. But since he semi-consistently leaves out the number four in just about any context, his estimates can be taken with, yeah, huge truckloads of salt. Given this, and doing some electron-tunnelling microscope level of reading between the lines of their texts, I'm going to take a stab at somewhere around about 100 being the number of anarchists banned. It's not a hill I'm willing to die on, but it is a mound that I'll stand on top of and tap dance mightily quickly in the face of criticism, uh, Moses supposes. Now, this figure actually stands up to some backfilling analysis, such as Inez Stilchen's clever work in working back through the aristocratic families of anarchists. They're the ones whose founders were Eucantharanaquist comrades and were granted land and titles by her. Doing her calculations, she's happy with the 100 figure, give or take a few, and to that I say, great work, Inez, take the day off. Other estimates range from Pete Duell's A Handful uh, to Oscar Hangarden's upper estimate of 2000, a figure that is regularly held up for derision and used on scurrilous T-shirts, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. So let's call it about a hundred. A hundred hardy souls with mixed skills, abilities, hopes and dreams. A band of a hundred who have found the most extraordinarily rich heavenfall in history and they have to defend their claim from those who take it away from them, which is just about everyone uh, from across the world below the war in the heavens. Forget having a target on their backs. They've got targets plastered on, on their fronts, uh, stuck to their foreheads, and the tiny settlement is surrounded with giant signs saying, this way to the poorly defended riches. Uh, figuratively, that is. So to say that Eucantharanaquist face some challenges here is a piquant understatement. According to the official account in the annals, Eucanthor Anarchist inspired her small band to heroic efforts in erecting fortifications and repelling the first incursion in the year 76, about 12 months after the Heavenfall had actually been uncovered. Uh, it was an attack by a motley crew from the northeast of the continent. 
from somewhere around the coastal region that would later become the realm of Kildare. This was less of an army and rather more of an armed gang, if you like, of a few hundred hard-bitten warriors who may have lacked leadership, but they were renowned for their skill as horse archers and bone carvers. The hasty earthworks thrown up by Eucantharanaquist's people are enough to see off these raiders with no losses. Uh, and in Eucantharanaquist's first outing as military leader, she both inspired through clever tactics, including the hidden pits, feints, fallbacks, that sort of thing, but she also took to the leader of the raiders in single combat. Uh, he was a giant of a man uh, with a beard that reached his waist, Apparently, she dismounted him, lopped off his head and presented such a bloody, fearsome sight that the rest of the raiders turned tail and ran. Well, that's the official version anyway. The annals of Aniquist have a job to do, and that's to present each ruler in the best possible light, seeing as the ruler oversees the text that goes into them. Outright lies are frowned upon in compiling the annals, but that a rule that's occasionally overlooked. Exaggerations, though, are pretty much standard fare, as long as they exaggerate in the nicest possible way. As previously discussed, alternative sources from these times are few and far between, but fragments of a text that is unreliably dated as being written in the year 78, anonymously, claims that this attack by raiders was nothing of the sort, and that it was actually a party of traders from the east, looking to sell fresh produce to this uh, benighted settlement. Someone panicked, sounded the alarm, and a squad, only too ready to defend the riches of their heavenfall, annihilated the trading party before Eucantha Aniquist was even aware of its existence. No firm evidence survives to support or disprove this incident, except for one graffito uncovered on the foundations of the original keep. Uh, when excavations were being undertaken in 690 for the water garden in the reign of Queen the I. The scratchy carving was the name Laws, and underneath it, Slayer of Cabbages. Yeah, some conjecture places the Laws Yelter as a member of the Aniquist Band, but this is extremely uncertain. Call it frontier ups and downs, perhaps. As a trader, you took your life into your hands, but the rewards could be great. Eucantha Aniquist's undisputed masterstroke in defending the Heavenfall was the recruitment of people from the surrounding region. Over the next few years, as attacks became more frequent and more serious, uh, Eucantha Aniquist made concerted efforts to bring in the scattered settlers through whose holdings these forces were rampaging on the way to the Heavenfall. And she brought them in what was now the defensive walls, as long as the adults would fight. So displaced people, basically. Uh, Since most of these settlers were families and the safety of their children was far better behind the walls, most agreed. And by the year 78, the Heavenfall settlement had several hundred defenders, plus a mixture of desirably skilled people like bakers, butchers and soap makers. Very desirable soap makers. So much manual labour going along with so much close living made for olfactorily based friction, if you get my drift. The excavation of the actual heaven vault around it was, it was becoming a settlement, complete with palisade walls, earthworks and a number of defensive towers. In this most precarious period, 
Yukantha Anakus led those who were to become her people in withstanding almost constant raids and attacks while completing the work that was to become the beginnings of the Keep and the Hypogeum, but not in that order necessarily. The fortifications that kept the attackers at bay extended in a ring that surrounded the body of the dead god, nearly a kilometre in diameter. Between it and the growing excavation site uh, were located the workshops, barracks and uh, residences of the swelling population. And here's where Yukantha Anakwa's military nous was balanced by her people management skills, just as she brought her hitherto unsuspected architectural and engineering talents to the fore. Superhuman, nope. Well, I say if a person can't be superhuman nearly 2,000 years ago, when can they be superhuman? So what if these disparate gifts may more accurately be the result of surrounding herself with people who are excellent architects, supremely gifted engineers, military geniuses, outstanding administrators, and uh, surrounding herself with these people and then um, taking the credit for it? Think of it this way. If Eucantha Anarchist embodied the nascent state... Then, in truth, she embodied all the skills and talents of her underlings, correct? Uh, At least hers is the only name that is remembered, uh, connected with these vital aspects of keeping the new settlement alive and protecting the heavenfall. Credit where credit's due, or credit wherever you can take it from someone else, preferably a subordinate, maybe. Let's just say that opinions differ except for one area, and that's leadership. No one seriously argues that Eucantha Anarchist leadership was anything other than extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah, as soon as I say that, I think, uh, yeah, no one apart from someone like Jabez Soames, the 19th century dilettante and scholar. But as well as claiming that Eucantha Anarchist was an inept leader (laughs) in the face of all evidence, he also maintained that she was descended from a grapefruit and that she could breathe underwater. So the less said about Jabez Soames, the better. Those who study the world below the war in the heavens have been a wide and varied lot, <laughs> in one way or another, as you're already starting to learn. Does studying the world below the war in the heavens attra- actually attract eccentrics, uh, misanthropes and ne'er-do-wells? Not always, I say, and then I move on quickly. The hypogeum, the massive underground structure that houses and protects the body of the dead god, is one of the marvels of the world below the war in the heavens, and it needs an episode all of its own, and I've scheduled that for series two, so hold on to your horses. It's enough to say here that the conception, at least, belonged to Eucantheranicist, and the breathtaking audacity of the whole construction is certainly consistent with what is undisputed about it. The scale, too, is something to marvel at a structure that was built into the gigantic excavation and actually uses many barrel vaults as its components, providing stability and strength enough for it to cover the entire dead god's body. A central nave, if you like, is fully 30 metres across and stretches 500 metres to enclose the dead god from head to toe, with more barrel vaults making aisles on either side of the central nave, and these eventually house administrative departments and temple requirements. And they stretched the walls of the excavation and used the surrounding earth to actually buttress the vaults to uh, compensate for the, the outward forces of the weight of the stone. To imagine that much of this work proceeded while the settlement was under fierce attack is, is well, it's remarkable. 
And here's where the legendary multitasking of Yucantha Anarchus came to the fore. Not that contemporaries put it like that, or indeed historians until much more recently, really. They may have used metaphors like juggling instead, I guess. Uh, yeah, that'd be more period appropriate. While Yucantha Anarchus was planning and supervising the construction of what was to become the Hypergeum, the home of the dead god, uh, they had divert several springs that were unearthed while they were doing so. She was also marshalling defenders, organising stone cutting at nearby granite outcrops, organising the separating the first scales from the body of the dead god and overseeing the disposition of the caravans, bringing vital supplies. And she was also conducting secret negotiations with mercenaries and potential allies, using her future share of heaven for riches to do so. Now, one of these negotiants was Antonor Dromon. Uh, he was the leader of loosely related scattered clan who lived in the mountains to the northeast of M4. Uh, hardy, independent people, uh, fond of poetry, music and fighting. Not, not, not necessarily in that order. Their home area had guaranteed a subsistence lifestyle that the people who lived there boasted was an advantage. Uh, character building, as it were. Uh, hardship equaling hardihood or something like that. You know people who uh, who talk in that way, who take pride in denial or suffering, say it makes them better people. Any, anyway, Antonor Dromon, he, however, he had a, a wider outlook than his fellows. He had higher aims than finding a slightly less pointy rock for his bed. But after a messenger from Ecantha Anarchist offered him terms and convinced him that a move to the fertile lowlands and part of the riches of uh, Heavenfall would actually be a step up lifestyle-wise, uh, he had a tough job of convincing his people. Nevertheless, convinced them he did, and not solely by knocking a few heads together. Several thousand Highlanders eventually heeded Dromon's call and descended on the Heavenfall. Arriving while Yucantha Anarchist and her people were fighting off yet another raid from a, a persistent band of raiders. This band, uh, one who habitually wore leather straps and not much else for personal reasons. Imagine that moment. Escades writes vividly of it. The, the point when the wild horde hoved into view, riding their mountain ponies and marching to the wailing sound of an instrument that they claimed made music, despite all opinions to the contrary. Escades' portrayal of Yucantha Anarchist in the northeast watchtower, surveying the leather-strap people as they howled and attacked the earthworks on the north, while the Highland Horde approached from the northeast. Escades' words... A line appeared on her forehead, she wrote. An unusual visitor to that immaculate brow. Concern? Worry? Doubt? We will never know. Yeah, thanks, Eskadi. Whatever that line was on that immaculate forehead, it was probably inspired by wondering if the Highlanders would come to the aid of the settlement or join the leather-strap people in attacking it. The truth of the situation became clear, however, when the Highlanders fell on the leather-strapped people from the rear and routed them amid much singing, bloodshed and looting. While notoriously fractious, the infusion of Highlanders did much to actually ensure the stability of the Heavenfall settlement. Antonor Dromon became one of Yucantha Anikwa's staunchest supporters, 
one of her most reliable political allies and one of her most favoured romantic partners, from all accounts. He became the military commander of the settlement for all intents and purposes. And he was a practical soldier, no great uh, strategist or tactician, but his skills were enough to keep the settlement safe on most occasions. With the Acantharanaquist only being called on for overarching battle strategies against the most coordinated and organised of foes as in the Battle of the Quarry in the year 78. While this first five years of the settlement was a frantic period of consolidation and defence, it all could have come to nothing if it hadn't been for the arrival of someone even more important to the rule and reign of the person who was to become Eucantha the First. This arrival was even more important than that of Antinor Dromon and his people because she was able to harness the otherworldly power of the Heavenfall. This was Tekla Hamases. A brief background. Tekla Hamases was a young woman when she appeared at the gates of the settlement, alone, apparently unconcerned at having trekked over hundreds of leagues of wilderness by herself. Sources agreed that she was short, slight, dark hair and eyes, and easily overlooked if it wasn't for her general air of seeing things that weren't there and a wickedly mordant sense of humour. But in an era uh, where the magical arts were only beginning to be understood in any systematic way, she was that rarest of talents, a magical theorist who could also fabricate magical devices. As such, she was able to suggest to Eucantha Anaquist that the scales that were being removed from the body of the dead goddess trade items, each one worth a fortune, they could be more lucrative if they were categorised and fashioned into working magical contrivances. This was a substantial leap in the finances of the settlement and the beginning of what was to become a magical powerhouse. Megra, the 4th century political philosopher, went to great pains to suggest that this arrangement, uh, Eucanthoranaquist, Antinor Dromon and Tekla Hamases, was in fact a ruling triumvirate, uh, the governing of the emerging realm being divided between the three of them equally. Others say, yeah, nah. For instance, in the 7th century, Timius, in Despots, Tyrants and Dictators, a guide, wrote, Make no mistake, Eucantha Anaquist was an autocrat, albeit a very good-looking one. Her word was law, and just because she had very thoughtful words that became sensible, fair laws, doesn't alter the fact that she was a supreme and unchallenged ruler. Timius, having a little bit each way there. Regardless, with Tekla Hamases establishing a magical workshop in the vaults near the body of the dead god, and Antinor Dromon fending off all attackers, Eucantha Anaquist divided her time between completing a castle keep on the edge of the great excavation containing the gradually unearthed body of the dead god, and she was also taking the audacious step of burying the structure she'd built over the dead god. Her reasoning seems to be simple. A large open structure holding such a huge precious resource made it far too valuable and too vulnerable to incursion. Putting it underground and linking it with a fortified underground passage to the castle would make it far easier to protect. Easy to say, harder to construct though. It was the year 75 when this was completed. It was an important time because it was the year that Eucantha Anaquist was actually hailed 
as queen, having been until this time simply the leader of a company of a hundred adventurers plus the assorted others who joined them, several thousand Highlanders and a large but undetermined number of people who'd simply been attracted by the growing settlement. Detractors and revisionists have suggested this crowning was all Yucantha's doing, that she'd secretly negotiated support from followers and sycophants, and well, 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 there's some evidence of this. At this time, a surprising number of families became ennobled and were awarded their own patch of land outside the walls, according to Escades. Even though this was the case, Eucantha Anarchus never neglected the ordinary people. She was much loved, for instance, by the labourers who toiled on the walls, the keep and the hypogeum. Velmon recording that she took precautions to keep building site deaths and injuries to a minimum, and she used her own fortune to pay pensions to any who were incapacitated and to the family of anyone killed on the job. The call to crown Eucanthor Anaquist is said to have arisen in the year 75 during midsummer celebrations in the small marketplace inside the walls. High spirits and plenty of drink might have had something to do with it, but nevertheless the cry, once vented, was taken up and soon echoed around the settlement. Of course, like any good politician, Eucanthor Anaquist refused the call. One can't be seen as eager in those circumstances. The unwilling queen, a surefire crowd pleaser. She didn't have to be asked twice, though, and when a crowd assembled in front of the keep, a crowd that legend has it consisted of everyone bar one guard left in the westernmost guard tower, a notoriously heavy sleeper. And the crowd that assembled demanded that Eucanthoranicus take the crown, become their queen, and she reluctantly accepted. The actual coronation took place a few months later, early in the year 76. But Eucantha Anaquist's reign has traditionally been backdated, accepted to have started when the Heavenfall was first uncovered in the year 70. A backdated monarchy? Why not? It's not as if she's going to get early long service leave or anything. Even though the temple had a presence in the settlement by then, a move that was tolerated but not actively encouraged by Eucantha Anaquist, Tekla Hamases was the one who actually placed the crown on the new monarch's head. Hamases had made the crown from a single, choice, superior, scintillating, argent scale of prodigious puissance. It was plain and unembellished, but it shone with a silvery light of its own, which was doubled if it caught and reflected any other direct light. The crown of Eucantha, the most precious heirloom in the early history of Anarchist, was lost in the nightmare years of the 4th century, sadly. Crowned and now a ruler of a realm, and not just a captain of a mixed bag of followers, hangers-on and devotees, Eucantha Anarchist reigned for another 34 years until her death in the year 110, consolidating and expanding the realm that took her name, the realm of Anarchist. And now to her dark side, as I semi-promised. I know you've all been waiting for this, on the edge of your seat, ready to dive into the salacious, the seamy, the sensational. And as a little aside, I hope you appreciate that alliteration as much as I do. And also the fact that I've generally restrained myself from using alliteration because a little goes a long way. Remember that, folks. If you're dead keen on plunging into this side of Eucanthor Anarchist, then you may as well go straight to The Truth, written by the 3rd century gossip monger Velmont, who never heard a rumour he couldn't embellish. 
This lurid little volume presents itself as an impartial biography of the first five rulers of Anarchist. But don't complain to me if you start to feel a little steamy after reading only a few pages. Take a cold shower. It'll do you good. Rumours are rife, of course, as they are bound to do with such a prominent legendary figure. Tales put about by detractors from within the family and without. Dr Tam Shudd from the Overburton Institute in Wales actually went to the trouble of assembling as many rumours as he could from a multitude of sources, ancient and modern, and not neglecting Velmont, brave man. They range from the fairly standard, on occasion she went about disguised as a foreigner for assignation of the demeaning kind, to the more inventive, Eucantha the Perverted had a pleasure palace erected on the coast, well away from the town, where she disported with all and sundry, away from the cares of ruling. Yeah, just the sort of thing that you'd expect detractors to say. Dr Shard has some more fascinating examples, though, while constantly emphasising how unreliable each account was. Here are a few of them. Eucantha Anarchist was cruel to animals. Now, Shad is at pains to dismiss this one and points out that Eucantha had a series of dogs, each one called Talos, and was known to love them dearly. A statue existed at one time where she had a dog. She was seated, she had a dog at her side, and one hand is on the dog's head and it's actually giving it an affectionate scritch. Uh, you dog owners know about head scritches. This statue is lost again in the nightmare years, but the original is known through copies. Uh, second rumour. Eucantha Anarchist was a secret glutton and grew so obese that in later years she had a double to represent her in public. This is a fairly specific charge, but Dr Shudd was unable to actually pin down the origin. Suffice it to say that multiple other sources note how much Eucantha enjoyed food, but also that she maintained a strenuous regime of fitness by way of daily punishing arms practice, and she had a lean and graceful frame all her life. The charge with most foundation is that Eucantha Anarchist was terrible with names. Yeah, dating back to her piracy days, it was said that she customarily greeted people with titles instead of names. She'd uh, holler out, my lord, or my lady, or oh, great one, instead of using someone's actual name. Now, it is well established that not long after her coronation, she had an assistant whose sole job was to stand next to her at functions and whisper in Eucantha's ear the name of every person approaching. Dark side, maybe not, but it's a fairly well-accepted and humanising flaw in a figure that actually struggles to be human, thanks to the distancing effect of time. To sum up, Eucantha was undoubtedly an opportunist. Charismatic, certainly. Intelligent, formidably. Good-looking, apparently she was breathtakingly stunning. Lucky, perhaps. But like many successful people, she made a lot of her luck herself. But Eucantha Anarchist, Queen Eucantha I, truly remains an enigma, really. What we're talking about is fragments of a person, and we try to put them together to try to make a, a real human being. But it's extraordinarily difficult at a distance of nearly 2,000 years. Still romantic as hell, right? This has been The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, 
culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. <laughs>